Uh, good afternoon, everyone. So good to see you all here. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Marcus. I'm one of the student ministers here at Bexley North. It's great to be here. Um, and as Don just read, we're going to be uh, looking at the story of Noah this afternoon. And I think for many of us, probably for most of us, this is a story that we're kind of familiar with. As Josh said, you know, they make toys about this story. Um, but I think that as we look closely at the text, we're going to see the greatness the power and the justice of our God. And uh, so I need help right now, uh, and I think we all need help to understand, so why don't we pray to God now? Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to your word now, give us eyes to see the reality of our own hearts and minds to know the truth of your righteousness and justice. Give us clarity on who you are, And remind us of the goodness of being in Christ. And I pray all this in his name. Amen. Well, let's begin. We'll just get straight into it. And our passage today starts at one of the lowest points of human history. Uh, Take a look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. If you haven't already got it open, uh, keep Genesis 6 open. Chapter 6, verse 5. When the Lord saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every scheme his mind thought of was nothing but evil all the time. This was a terrible time to be around. Just a few chapters back in Genesis 1 and 2, I'm sure you can remember, God saw, he looked at what he had made and it was very good. But by the time we reach Genesis 6, the sin of humanity has spread all out across the earth. God looks at what mankind has done. God sees, God saw what mankind has done. And it was evil and wickedness. And it's everywhere. It's like a a bad smell in a public toilet. You can't avoid it. It is everywhere. And sin is so widespread that there's no goodness either. Every scheme that man's mind thought of was nothing but evil all the time. And in some ways, this is kind of like the time that we live in now. We find it hard to go anywhere in life without seeing the effects of sin on display, don't we? We see homelessness in the streets of the CBD. We hear gossip and lies spread in cafes and car parks. We see dodgy deals being made in work corridors. And there's bullying on TV screens almost every night of the week. Um, My wife, Naomi, and I, we like to watch The Block. I know you probably think we're evil already just from that. Uh, But The Block has really gone from this TV show about building up to a dramatised version of cutting people down. But if we're really honest, part of the reason we find it so hard to avoid the effects of sin is because our own hearts are sinful too. See, we're the ones who walk past the homeless man as we cling to our wallets. We're the ones who love to listen to the gossip and lies and the latest news about other people's shortcomings. 
were the ones who turned blind eyes to corruptions in the workplace. And were the ones who approve of these things by tuning into our TVs each night to watch other people's sin and wickedness. See, we see wickedness everywhere because our own hearts are sinful too. See, we live in a world full of wickedness, just like today's passage, don't we? While we might not have it to the same degree as Genesis 6, there is some good in the world. We see that even in the New Testament as the gospel goes out. There is good in the world today. Sin and wickedness is still definitely widespread. And it's in us too. It's in us. And what makes all of this Worse is the effect of our sin. Take a look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 6. This is what it says. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. How far we have fallen. This is a huge change. See, when God saw creation in Genesis 1 and 2, he saw that it was very good. But now God sees what's happening in Genesis 6 and he's so deeply, deeply saddened, he regrets. He regrets making people in the first place. See, have you ever considered the fact that sin grieves God? God is deeply, deeply saddened by the things we do that aren't in line with his will. When we lie, that saddens God. When we're greedy, that grieves God. See, even when we do the right thing out of wrong motives, that makes God sad. We hate it when God, uh, we, we hate it when other people do these things to us, don't we? And yet we do it to God every day. And just as an aside, um, when we confess our sin in church or alone, do we, do we have this perspective on sin? See, we're blessed to be uh, at a church where we confess sin uh, almost every week, sometimes every second week, as part of our church services. But when we confess our sins to God, whether alone at home or here at church together, do we feel the weight of the things we've done? Do we understand or believe the effect that they've had on God? Because our sin deeply, deeply saddens God. It grieves him in his heart. I think this means we can't be flippant about the way that we confess our sin. To pray with our lips and not feel the weight of what we've done, is to pretend that the offence that we've caused God doesn't actually matter that much. But these aren't just arbitrary rules that we've broken. No, it's a relationship we've destroyed. And so when we confess our sins, understand the weight of what we've done, and confess sincerely. Anyway, back to the passage. And as we've seen, things in Genesis 6 are 
bad. They're bad. And so what will God do? Actually, let's flip this question on its head. What would you do? What would you do in this situation? Because in the room today, we have uh, people from all walks of life, but we've got teachers, we've got project managers, we've got team leaders. If the people you were responsible for completely disregarded you and just started hurting one another all the time, what would you do? And how long would it take for you to take action? How long would it take? Because one of the things we need to notice here is how patient God is. If you just cast your eyes back to chapter 5, you'll see that the events that are about to take place are after hundreds and hundreds of years of corruption. See, never in Scripture do we see an impatient, impulsive or irrational God. The decision he makes is one made out of patience, not pettiness. And so look at what God decides to do in his patience in chapter 6, verse 7. It says this, Then the Lord said, I will wipe off from the face of the earth mankind whom I created, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. And then jump down, chapter 6, verse 13. Verse 13. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I am going to destroy them along with the earth. After generation upon generation of sin upon sin upon sin, God is going to destroy every living creature. Because the corruption of humanity has seeped out into everything. See, God is going to completely undo all the work he's done, because now it's corrupt. Look at the list of things he'll destroy in verse 7. Mankind, whom I created, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky. This is an intentional reversal of the creation that God has done in Genesis 1 and 2. God is going to stamp out corruption from the earth. See, God is like the perfect, eternal ICAC, the Independent Commission Against Corruption. Their job is to stamp out corruption in New South Wales. But rather than stamping out corruption using a court system that I don't really understand, the ICAC, I don't really get how it works, maybe you can explain that to me later, God instead is going to stamp out corruption by sending a flood, a destroying deluge. So take a look in Genesis 6 verse 17. Understand that I am bringing a flood, floodwaters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will die. God sends a destructive deluge to undo his regret. Again, he's he's not being petty here. This isn't just a decision he's making off a whim because this is the creation he rejoiced over. It's the creation he loved. Now, 
I think we might be tempted to disregard this as an issue for the people at the time. This is just Genesis 6. This is thousands of years ago. Things are different now for us, aren't they? And I agree, things are slightly different. But our sin still affects God. Our sin still affects God. And God's plan for justice nowadays is actually much more intense. Take a look up at the screen, Acts 17. This is what it says. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. That's Jesus. At the great resurrection, when Jesus returns, each one of us will be called to give an account of our lives before God. See, God has set a day for an even greater judgment than the flood. But like us, the people in Genesis aren't without hope. So take a look at Genesis 6, verse 9. 6, verse 9. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. And verse 22, jump down to verse 22, 6, verse 22. And Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded him. And Genesis 7, verse 5. Genesis 7, verse 5. And Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. See, right here in Genesis, we get a sole faithful man, Noah. And if you read Genesis 6 through 9, you'll notice two things about Noah. Firstly, he's not perfect. His righteousness and blamelessness is in comparison to his contemporaries, those who are evil. And then in chapter 9 we'll actually see that Noah sins in a big way. We're not going to be able to get to that part of Genesis today, so you might want to go home afterwards and have a read, see what happens. But the other thing we see about Noah in these chapters is that he is faithful to God. Everything God commands, he does. Even when God says, build a giant boat in the middle of a desert, Noah faithfully follows the commands of God. Take a look at how the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 11. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. And so God, out of his compassion and grace, gives Noah a literal lifeboat, a plan for the ark. Take a look at Genesis 6 verse 14. Verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and outside. Pitch there is like tar. It's meant to seal the boat so that no water gets in. And then jump down to chapter 6, verse 17. 6, verse 17. Understand that I am bringing a flood, floodwaters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will die, but I will establish my covenant with you 
and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your son's wives. See, God says to Noah, I will save you from the coming judgment. Put your faith in me and hop aboard. And God is faithful to his promise. He saves Noah and his family. It's a bit subtle in the text, but in so many ways, God is the real hero of this story. So jump down to Genesis 7 verse 16. 7 verse 16. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered just as God had commanded him. Then the Lord shut him in. And take a look at 7 verse 23. 7 verse 23. He, that's God, he wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, from mankind to livestock, to creatures that crawl, to the birds of the sky, and they were wiped off the earth. Only Noah was left, and those that were with him in the ark. God is the one who shuts up Noah into the ark. God is the one who protects Noah from the storm. While God is destroying every living creature, here he is, leaving Noah, protecting him from the storm. And God is the one who makes the trees grow for wood. And God is the one who gives Noah the plans for the ark. God shut up the door of the ark, sealed Noah into the safe place. And God sustains the boat during this powerful storm. God is a God who saves. Now, just as another aside, those verses that Don read for us earlier, uh, chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, they're devastating, aren't they? I was talking to Gnomes, my wife, earlier this week, and she was saying to me how awful she finds it to read this story. Because there's really only one way for each of these living creatures at the time of the flood to have died. They would have to have drowned. They would have to have drowned. And to drown is not a pleasant experience. It's to give up your breath. See, when God destroys these living creatures, he takes away the breath of life that he gave them when he made them. But this is what God had to do to establish justice. This is what the God of justice had to do to stamp out the corruption of mankind. But even though the whole world is destroyed, Noah, his family and everything on board the ark are saved by God. Take a look at Genesis 8 verse 1. Genesis chapter 8 verse 1. God remembered Noah as well as all the wildlife and all the livestock that were there with him in the ark. God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water began to subside. The sources of the watery depths and the floodgates of the sky were closed and the rain from the sky stopped. The water steadily receded from the earth And by the end of 150 days, 
the waters had decreased significantly. And then jump down to chapter 8, verse 14. 8, verse 14. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was dry. Noah and the ark made it through the flood. Noah is saved back on dry land. And this act of graciousness from God is going to result in a new humanity. So take a look at 9 verse 1. This is right after they get off the boat. Genesis chapter 9 verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth. Every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea, they are placed under your authority. Every living creature will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. All of this sounds familiar, doesn't it? It sounds like Genesis 1 and 2. Be fruitful and multiply. Eat from the trees. Rule the animals. God, through Noah and Anak, has brought salvation and is starting over. He's establishing a new humanity. That's salvation. But as I said earlier, just like the people in Noah's time, we too are in a similar spot. We too face judgment. And as we saw earlier in Acts 17, Jesus is coming. And when he does, he'll judge humanity. And so what's our salvation? Should we go out and build a boat too? We're going to have some snacks after church. Maybe afterwards we should head down to Bunnings Kingsgrove, buy some wood, uh, some nails, some pitch, some tar, start making a boat. Is that what we need to do? Well, of course not. Look at what God says in 8 verse 31. 8 verse 31. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. See, Jesus' coming is different. It's not a flood, but God incarnate. Jesus Christ as King will return. Even an ark the size of Noah's will just be like a dinghy in a perfect storm. See, rather than us being in an ark, we need to be in Christ. We need to be in Christ. See, have you ever noticed how often the writers of the New Testament use the phrase, in Christ? In fact, in Christ, or in Jesus, or in Him, is used more than any other way of describing Christians. Not followers, not disciples, not Christians. The word Christian only gets used once or twice in the Bible. No, we're described as in Christ, in Him. Because when you place your faith in Jesus, you are in him. You're united with him. And that means that everything Jesus accomplishes, we get to. So a sin-free life, being united with Christ, takes away your sin. 
the punishment you deserve, gone. Knowledge of God that Jesus has? Well, being in Christ gives us an intimate relationship with God. Protection from the coming judgment? Being united with Christ gives us a shield from the coming wrath. But how does this all work? How will Jesus, how will being united with Christ work as our salvation when he returns? We'll take a look closely at what happens when Jesus dies on the cross in Matthew 27. It says this, Jesus shouted again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Um, Now for some of us in the room, as we think about that word spirit, uh, we might think of like a, a soul, and that's kind of right. But here it's, it's trying to communicate the essence of life, the breath of life. The breath of life that Jesus gave to mankind when he made all of creation, which he took up in his incarnation, he gives up his spirit. He gives up his breath of life. And Jesus gave it up voluntarily so that those who are in him would be saved. See, when Jesus returns, we'll stand before the throne of God and say, I'm not saved because of me. I am in Christ. And he has already taken the judgment for me by giving up his spirit, by giving up the breath of life. On the cross. And so we've got to do what Jesus says in Matthew 24. Come up on the screen in two parts. As the days of Noah were, this is what Jesus says, by the way, as the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. So this is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Therefore, be alert. Get ready, since you do not know what day your Lord is coming. Jesus says the day of his return, the day when judgment will come, could be any moment now. And he says, don't make the same mistake that they made in Genesis 6. They thought Noah was silly, building a boat in the middle of a desert. Crazy. And people will probably think you're silly too. Following a Jewish bloke from around 2,000 years ago. Crazy. But don't make the same mistake that they did. Get on board. Make sure that you're in Christ. Be a part of the new humanity made through Jesus' death and resurrection. If you're unsure about how that works, come and chat to me after. We're going to be having some snacks. I'd love to chat with you about that and pray with you. But the other thing we need to do is make sure to call others to be united with Christ too. From Bexley North to Botswana, 
we're all guilty of sin. All humanity needs to be called aboard. And as Noah was chipping away at building his ark, he made public the need for them to join him. And so as you chip away at building God's kingdom each day, make public the need to be in Christ. Invite people to read the Bible with you. Invite people to life. Tell them the hope of the resurrection of the Son of God. Because there's only one lifeboat that will weather the storm. And that's Jesus. Why don't we pray in his name now? Lord, we thank you that you are the God who saves. That all throughout history you've had a plan for salvation. Lord, we thank you that you made that plan known to Noah and that through him you saved a remnant. You saved people to form a new humanity. And Lord, we thank you that you have made Jesus known to us and that in him we are saved. Lord, we confess our sins sincerely, knowing that we need your salvation. Lord, we pray that at the coming judgment, that we might be found in him. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.